Uh, well, with that, I'm excited to get into the Word today. Uh, if you have your Bibles, um, if you want to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 35, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 10. Isaiah 35, verses 1 to 10. If you can choose your translation, I'm going to be reading from the NLT, the New Living Translation, um, and you'll also see it on the screen uh, behind me. Isaiah chapter 35, verses 1 to 10. This is the reading of God's Word. Even the wilderness and desert will be glad in those days. The wasteland will rejoice and blossom with spring crocuses. Yes, there will be an abundance of flowers and singing and joy. The deserts will become as green as the mountains of Lebanon, as lovely as Mount Carmel or the plain of Sharon. There the Lord will display his glory, the splendor of our God. With this news, strengthen those who have tired hands and encourage those who have weak knees. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear, for your God is coming to destroy your enemies. He's coming to save you. And when he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind and unplug the ears of the deaf. The lame will leap like a deer, and those who cannot speak will sing for joy. Springs will gush forth in the wilderness, and streams will water the wasteland. The parched ground will become a pool, and springs of water will satisfy the thirsty land. Marsh grass and reeds and rushes will flourish where desert jackals once lived, and a great road will go through that once deserted land. It will be named the Highway of Holiness. Evil-minded people will never travel on it. It will be only for those who walk in God's ways. Fools will never walk there. Lions will not lurk along its course, nor any other ferocious beasts. There will be no other dangers. Only the redeemed will walk on it. Those who have been ransomed by the Lord will return. They will enter Jerusalem singing, crowned with everlasting joy. Sorrow and mourning will disappear, and they will be filled with joy and gladness. Amen. Amen. Um, as you know, we are in an Advent series right now at our church. Uh, if you were with us a couple weeks ago, Elizabeth launched our Advent series with a message on hope. Uh, last week, we looked at peace, and today we're talking about joy. Now, obviously, joy is a huge theme during Christmas, uh, the joy of giving and receiving gifts, uh, the joy of being together with family uh, and loved ones, the joy of laughter and celebration. Um, but I also understand that um, this season can also be hard for a lot of people because, you know, Christmas and the holidays tends to be a time when um, you often think about and remember those you've lost. Uh, this can be a time when uh, that can be really lonely if you're by yourself or your relationships uh, aren't in order. Um, this can be a, a time that represents kind of uh, the passage of time, right, where, you know, you kind of reflect on your life and things aren't the way that you thought it would be at the end of the year. And this time, that's all about kind of going home, all about being home, um, for many of us uh, can feel extremely far from home. You know, we can actually feel extremely homesick, ex extremely displaced from that sense of home. And I think that idea really sets up uh, the backdrop for the passage we just read today because um, Isaiah was writing to a people who were very familiar with the idea of being displaced from home. 400 years of slavery in Egypt, 
40 years wandering around in the wilderness, 70 years in exile. This is a people whose history was marked by war and violence and oppression. This is a people who watched uh, their land and their sovereignty be taken away from them. This is a people who their, their, their entire history was about them searching for this sense of home. And though you and I will never know kind of what, it's li- what it was like to live as an Israelite in the ancient Near East, I think a lot of us to some extent can relate to this sense of restlessness, this deep longing for home. It's this nagging feeling that things aren't as they should be. It's this unsettling ache in our gut uh, that just won't go away, that kind of feels like things are incomplete. Um, Adam Grant, who's a well-known psychologist, wrote an article for the New York Times this past April, and the title of the article was, There's a Name for the Blah You're Feeling. It's called Languishing. And that term languishing was coined by a sociologist named Corey Keyes, who observed that, man, just because you're not depressed doesn't mean you're thriving either. You know, that just because things aren't terrible also doesn't mean things are great either you know that most of us are in this weird gray area this weird space between where we're just kind of existing and um in the article grant defines languishing like this and i'll put the quote up on the screen he says languishing is the neglected middle child of mental health it's the void between depression and flourishing the absence of well-being you don't have symptoms of mental illness but you're not the picture of mental health either. You're not functioning at full capacity. Languishing dulls your motivation, disrupts your ability to focus, and triples the odds that you'll cut back on work. It appears to be more common than major depression, and in some ways it may be a bigger risk factor for mental illness. Now, um, Obviously, I don't know what everyone in this room is going through, but I would say that if I were to venture to guess based on my many conversations uh, with members of our church this past year, uh, I would venture to guess that most of us are here. Most of us are languishing. You know, we're, maybe it's not full-blown depression, but there's this sense of feeling unsettled, unmotivated, a little bit dull, a little heavy, life feels a little muffled and muted, right? Um, where, where it just feels like we're just kind of existing. You know, it's very rare these days uh, to meet somebody when, when I ask them, how's, how's it going, to hear them say, great, or even fine. You know, uh, most of the people I ask how it's going, I get one of three responses. Number one is rough. You know, I, I hate my job, can't stand my kids, but... What are you going to do, right? Uh, option two, which is a little bit better, when I ask how is it going, they'll say, it's going. Day by day, just hanging in there, right? And three, which is probably the most common, is surviving. You know, and, and you know, when surviving is like, when, when, you know, when you feel like surviving is an adequate response for how we, we feel moving around in this world, you know there's a problem. This past week, uh, I was at a coffee shop and I asked the barista, how you doing? And he said, well, I'm breathing. Can't complain. I was like, man, if breathing is the best you got, we have a problem. And, and yet I think this is where most of us are. We're just surviving. 
We're just trying to get through the day without dying. We're just keeping our head above water, and in the end, we're, we're shells of ourselves. We're empty, we're stagnant, and we're devoid of joy. And the power of Isaiah 35 is that it gives a people who are living like this, who are living in despair and sorrow and hopelessness, a vision of what going back home is going to feel like. It's a prophetic picture of Eden. It's a prophetic picture of the world, the way it was supposed to be. It's a picture of beauty and harmony and joy. And it's not just humanity, it's all of creation. If you notice in verses 1 and 2, it says, Even the wilderness and the desert will be glad in those days. The wasteland will rejoice and blossom with spring crocuses. Yes, there will be an abundance of flowers and singing and joy. We often forget that sin didn't just affect humanity. Sin affected the whole earth. Sin affected all of creation and everything that was once so vibrant and full of life and full of color suddenly began to decay. It's what the Apostle Paul refers to in Romans 8 when he talks about the whole earth groaning. And what are we groaning for? We're groaning for a return to Eden. We're groaning for a return back home. You know, the only videos that um, get me choked up, and I think Instagram, the algorithm is so genius because it knows around this time of the year the videos that I want to see, and it's always the soldiers returning home. And, you know, it, it doesn't matter. It's the same formula every time, right? They, they blindfold the families. They, you know, they make up some game. They bring them out onto the field. You know, they bring the soldier in. They, you know, they take the blindfold off, and it's immediate waterworks. Why? Because there's just something about that moment of watching someone who's been through so much be re reunited with his family, where he, there's this sense of home that's hard to put into words. And it's just this moment of pure, unadulterated joy. And this is the kind of vision Isaiah is giving to these Israelites who've been carrying generations of grief and weariness in their bodies. You see the references there to tired hands and weak knees in verse 3, fearful hearts in verse 4, blind eyes and deaf ears in verse 5, crippled legs and silent tongues in verse 6. What is Isaiah doing here? Isaiah is constructing for his hearers a literal body, a physical body that's holding all the pain and brokenness of the world inside of it. And the idea is that sin has completely, has rendered us completely incapable of experiencing creation the way it was meant to be experienced. Because of sin, we can no longer see properly. Our vision is clouded by our pride and our jealousy of others. Because of sin, we can no longer hear properly. Right? We can no longer hear the still small voice of God whispering words of love in our ears and instead we, we hear the lies of the enemy that become deafening. These lies that tell us we're not good enough or that we need to do more. Because of sin we can't speak properly. We can't use our God-given voices because of the ways that, that those voices have been silenced by those in power, those who've exploited us, those who've abused us who have made us feel small and insignificant, and we can't move around the world properly and freely because we're crippled by our fear and anxiety. This is what sin has done to us. And so if you're an Israelite, you have to imagine what it must have felt like to hear phrases like, and when he comes, 
He will open the eyes of the blind and unplug the ears of the deaf. The lame will leap like a deer, and those who cannot speak will sing for joy. It's this promise of home. It's this promise that one day God is coming to heal every broken thing, to restore all that has been lost once and for all. This is what Christmas joy is about. It's about God coming to a people who are weary and tired and restless and giving them a taste of home. Now, what's really fascinating about the Christmas story is that on the surface, it doesn't look like home. It doesn't look or smell or feel like home at all. There's no hot cocoa. There's no conversation. There's no laughter. There's no warm fireplace. It's just a scared teenage girl laying her baby in a manger. Doesn't look like home. And it's profound to think that this is how joy breaks into the world. You know, um, I'm going to put on the screen, when we think of joy, we typically think of images like this, right? Or this. Or this. Right? We, we, we think of the extraordinary. We think of the spectacular. We think of the mountaintop moments in our lives. But the Christmas story is unique and different because it shows us a joy that appears in the dark. It appears in the quiet. It appears at night. As if to remind us that the joy of the Lord is different from the joy that the world can offer us. You see, right now in our culture, there's this huge movement around helping people discover their joy. Um, Marie Kondo in 2016 took the world by storm, right, with her book, Spark Joy and then her subsequent Netflix special. And, and, and her whole, the cult of Marie Kondo was about decluttering your life and keeping only the things that gave you joy. And it's really hilarious when you watch Marie Kondo because they say, they ask her, well, how do you know if an object gives you joy? And she'll hold the object and she'll be like, if you go, hmm? <laughs> and then she holds another object and she goes, hmm. And then you throw that away. And, and I know Marie Kondo has helped so many people, but I mean, even that philosophy in and of itself presumes that joy can be found out there in an object. That you can find your source of joy in something or an experience or a circumstance, right? And obviously, we all know things and experiences can give us momentary bursts of joy. They're like adrenaline shots to the system. But we all know that that kind of joy, you have to keep upping the dosage in order to maintain that level of joy. The first time you sit in a new car and you get that new car smell, that's just joy. It feels awesome. But we all know the second time you sit in the car, the third time, the fourth time, that joy starts to wane. And at some point, it just becomes another car. We all know that when you take a bite out of something super delicious, that first bite is ecstasy. It's joy. But we know that every bite after the first is never as good as the first. The only exception to that rule is the Langer's number 19, okay? That thing, it gets better every, every bite. I don't know how they do it, okay? But anyways, that's not, that's not the point. Um, the point is we're longing for, all of us are longing for joy. And yet we keep thinking it's something to be found out there. We're all longing for joy, but 
we keep thinking that it's something that we have to go out and get rather than something that has become available to us in Jesus. The Christmas story is the story of God bringing the fullness of who he is down to earth so that all the joy that emanates from his life and his being is available to us and now lives in you and me. Put another way, true joy isn't something we have to go out and get. It's something that has come to us. And what this means is that we can access this joy in every season and every circumstance of our lives. We don't have to wait for extraordinary moments. We can access this joy in every moment. We can be joyful sitting at our desk on Monday morning. We can be joyful sitting in traffic on the 10, the worst freeway in America. Okay, we can, be jo- we can be joyful even in the darkest seasons of our lives, in our loss, in our pain, and in our failure. In fact, throughout Scripture, we see that sorrow and joy often coexist. In the book of James, James 1, James says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. 1 Peter 1, 6, In this you rejoice, even if now for a while, while you've had to suffer various trials. And Hebrews 12 reminds us that Jesus himself, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Jesus was a man deeply acquainted with grief and sorrow, and yet we know he possessed great joy. How? Because Jesus had such an intimate relationship with the Father. In John 15, he's talking to his disciples, and he says, As the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. And then two verses later, he says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Our joy is made complete when we abide in God's presence. Psalm 16 says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. So if that's the secret, how do we then get into God's presence? How do we start to abide in him so that we can access this joy that has become available to us, this joy that can sustain us in our darkest moments, this joy that is more than a fleeting feeling but a deep inner contentment and satisfaction? And I'm going to give us three practical things, okay? Number one, we create space. Two, we cultivate delight. And three, we connect with community. Create space, cultivate delight, connect with community. Okay, number one, create space. One of the biggest hindrances to cultivating joy in our lives is that we're so busy and so distracted, we have no room or margin to just reflect and sit with God. Um, Our leadership cohort had a homework assignment last month, and it was to create a plan, you know, to a plan for silence and solitude. And many of us created plans where all you had to do was set aside 15 minutes a day to just sit, unplug, and reflect. Well, this past Sunday when we met up, we realized it was nearly impossible for anyone to do this. And it just showed us how addicted to busyness we are, how addicted to our phones we are, how hard it is for us to unplug and just be with God. We don't have any space. We don't have any margin and yet the bible tells us we weren't meant to live this way 
We weren't meant to, to be busy 24-7 where there's always a notification, always a matter to tend to, always an email to write. You know, the first thing you'll notice in yourself when you're exhausted and you're burnt out is that you stop enjoying the things you used to do because you don't have the time and space to enjoy them anymore. You know, when I talk to parents who say, I don't know, I just don't enjoy spending time with my kids. And part of that is because we don't have space to enjoy our kids because we're always thinking about something else and it makes us difficult to just be present in the moment. Even when you think about the creation narrative, at the end of each day, it says God created and then he called it good. He didn't just create. He sat back and he enjoyed the work of his hands. He sat back and said, it is good. And then what did he do on the seventh day? We know he rested. And he didn't rest because he was tired. He's God. He rested because rest is a part of who God is. And if you and I are created in God's image, then we have to ask ourselves if we're living in a way that images him. If we're living in a way that images that rest. Are we creating space to rest and be with him are we creating space to enjoy the things God has given us? Okay, so number one, create space. Number two, cultivate delight. Find something you love to do and do more of it. If you love to hike, go for a hike. If you love to sing, sing to your heart's content. If you love being with kids, we need babysitters. Come on over, okay? We will help you find your joy, okay? And oftentimes we think these things aren't spiritual things because in our minds we've divided the world into God things and not God things. Like if you read a book by Tim Keller, that's spiritual. If you read Harry Potter, that's not spiritual. But there's nothing in the Bible that tells us that. Everything belongs to God. All beauty points to God. All goodness points to God. All enjoyment and satisfaction points to God. When you go on a walk outside, believe it or not, you're doing something extremely spiritual. You're enjoying God's creation and you're marveling at the work of his hands. That is what worship is. When you go out and have a meal with your friends, you're doing something extremely spiritual. You know, I think one of the worst things we've done to Jesus is that we've made him a buzzkill, okay? Like, the way we've portrayed Jesus is that we've turned him into this really somber, serious, introspective person. But Jesus actually knew how to have a lot of fun. You know, his first recorded miracle was turning water into wine at a wedding. Okay, Jesus knew how to throw a party. Okay, please do not take that verse out of context. Okay, but we know that Jesus knew how to enjoy himself. I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians when Paul says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. What this means is that following Jesus shouldn't just make us enjoy our prayer time more. It should actually make us enjoy all of life more. Now you might be asking, Jason, I thought you said joy can't be found in experiences or things. And yes, that's true. If the source we can't separate the giver from the gift. It's very dangerous, okay? It's not the thing or the act itself that is the source of our joy because if you do that, then your joy is always going to be dependent on that thing. 
But if you understand that you have, that you worship a good giver who desires your enjoyment and satisfaction, it actually allows you to appreciate the gift that much more because it gives you these little glimpses of home. You know, I remember back in college when I was on the East Coast, I didn't know how to, how to cook at the time, and my mom uh, sent me this entire suitcase worth of frozen meat. Okay, and I remember getting that um, in the mail. I opened up the suitcase, and it was just, the, the suitcase was filled with frozen meat. I don't even know how that, how she was able to send that. And, um, you know, it was, I defrosted it, and, you know, that, that sustained me for several months. And um, I remember it was, there was so much joy every time I, 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 I defrosted another piece of that meat and ate it. And the whole time I thought my mom had gone to a Korean supermarket and like just gotten a whole bunch of frozen meat. Well, later on I realized that she actually didn't go to the Korean market. She had actually marinated all the meat herself and she had sent it to me. And I, I only realized it because there was this thing that I grew up eating all the time. And when I, when I put that in my mouth, I was like, this isn't Korean supermarket. This is Mama Min for sure. Right? And there was this moment when I was like, this tastes like home. And all of a sudden, this thing that I already enjoyed now had so much more meaning in that moment because now I understood. I, I didn't separate the gift from the giver, and I realized that this was meant to give me a taste of home. Okay, so number one, we create space. Two, we cultivate delight. And finally, we connect with community. In Paul's letter to the Romans, he exhorts the church to rejoice with those who rejoice. It's this idea that joy is meant to be experienced in community. We have to remember that the joy of God is a shared joy. It's a shared joy between the Godhead, between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in community. And there's this subtle detail here. If you notice, Isaiah doesn't say, God will strengthen those who have tired hands. He tells the people, once you hear the news, you go strengthen the, those with tired hands. You go encourage those who have weak knees. You go say to those who have fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear. You see, there's a communal aspect to joy. Um, I was talking to uh, a sister at our church um, who is a huge BTS fan. Uh, she's a part of the army. I don't know if it's like, I still don't understand the plural or singular, like are you a member of the army? Are you just army? I still don't get it, okay? But uh, she's army, okay? And um, you know, BTS obviously breaking every record out there right now, sold out so far, four, four nights. And um, she was telling me, uh, she actually didn't go to the main like concert. Um, she actually paid a whole bunch of money to go to the YouTube theater where they were showing a live broadcast of the concert, okay? I did not understand that, okay? I said, okay, wait, you paid how much to go sit in a theater and watch a screen of BTS when you could have, couldn't you just have watched it at home? Like, you know, couldn't you have watched a stream at home? And she was like, no, it's different because you're with the army. And I was like, well, explain that to me. And she's like, well, you're, you're screaming together. You're crying together. 
you know, you're laughing together, you're singing together, and there's just this joy that becomes exponential when you're with other people who have the same love as you do. You know, and, 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 and that's true. I mean, studies show that. They say that you, you laugh five times as much when you're watching the same thing with people than when you're watching it alone. It's like research shows this. Um, and Adam Grant, he's the, he's the guy I quoted earlier who wrote that article about languishing. He actually wrote another article in July of this year, and, and the title of that article was, There's a Specific Kind of Joy We've Been Missing. And the premise of this article was that the biggest reason for the spike in depression and anxiety and mental health over the pandemic is that uh, one thing we've lost was something he called collective effervescence. It's when you gather with people around a share, shared purpose. And he said, we took for granted, you know, like the, 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 what happens in our souls when we're singing with other people. We took for granted what happens to our souls when we're running side by side in a marathon. We took for granted that thing that happens when you're working in a coffee shop shoulder to shoulder with someone else. And I love what he says at the end of the article. He says, you can feel depressed and anxious alone, but it's rare to laugh alone or love alone. Joy shared is joy sustained. He says, joy shared is joy sustained. I love that. So we create space, we cultivate delight, and we connect with community. And again, joy is not found in these things. We would say these things are what puts us in position to access the joy that has already been avail made available to us in Jesus' coming. We simply have to put ourselves in position to receive it. And as we begin to live in the joy that comes from the heart of God, it trains our hearts and our minds to look forward with expectation to the moment when all of these small glimpses of home become reality. When, as Revelation says, there will be no more weeping or tears or pain anymore, or how Isaiah puts it in verse 10, when those who have been ransomed by the Lord will return. They will enter Jerusalem singing, crowned with everlasting joy. Sorrow and mourning will disappear, and they will be filled with joy and gladness. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for inviting us into your joy this morning. I know that so many of us um, come here today joyless. So many of us come here today weary and burnt out, restless, just feeling incomplete, feeling empty, feeling like a shell of ourselves. But thank you for the good news that Christmas brings to us that now all the joy that emanates from your life and your being has come to us in Jesus' birth. What an amazing truth that is, this, this reality that we can now access the joy of heaven in the here and now. And I pray that even as we sing together, even as we're gathered together as a body, you will help us to experience the joy of your heart. 
that in this moment, as we sit together with other believers, as, and as we hear this good news preached, that it would do something to our bodies, that it would do something to our souls, that it would lift us up, it would unplug our ears, it would open our eyes, it would strengthen our hands and encourage our weak knees. Thank you for the joy that you give us. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your life, your death, and resurrection. All of it that allows us to live in joy in every circumstance and in every season. We thank you. We love you. And we pray all this in your son's precious name. Amen.